The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 5. And we are picking up with this discourse. Remember, Jesus is in the temple, and he's surrounded probably by hundreds, if not thousands of people that are listening to him explain uh, that he is God, and he is giving this defense of himself. I'm going to read 27 to 29 of John 5. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. As I was thinking this week, I can't remember the last time I heard a sermon uh, live and in person on the final judgment. Uh, might have happened, I just don't remember it. Um, th- this reality that Jesus talks about is shocking, especially to the world, postmodern world that we live in, which says that truth and ethics is relative. This is shocking what Jesus says. And, and it's even shocking, I think, uh, to most believers to, to hear about this reality of a final judgment. It would have been shocking to Jesus' hearers for a different reason. They, the, all the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they believed in a final judgment. The reason why this was shocking to them was because Jesus was claiming to be judge. That's why it was shocking to them. Just to refresh your memory on the context, remember Jesus has gone into Jerusalem to an unnamed feast, and he went to the pool of Bethesda, and he healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. He said, take up your bed and walk, and he did. And there was this huge uproar about why Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath. And I think Jesus had done this intentionally to create this uproar, to create this controversy with the religious leaders. So there's this huge debate that happens then later in the temple about why Jesus healed this man. And Jesus could have debated the semantics of the law. He had good ground to do so, but that's not what he does. He says, if you look at verse 17 of John 5, he says, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. That statement is a claim to deity because all the Pharisees and scribes believe that the father worked on the Sabbath day. Everybody else rested, but the Father kept working. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, I keep working. So it's fine because I am God to heal on the Sabbath. And at this, they tried to kill him. 
I mean, they tried to kill him. They, they thought he was blaspheming God by claiming to be God. And he would be if he wasn't. But he was. So what Jesus does is he gives this defense, this defense of his deity. If you ever wonder what Jesus would have said before the Sanhedrin, before Pontius Pilate at his trial, this is it right here in John 5. This is his defense that he makes for himself. In verses 20 to 24, Jesus makes six divine statements. He's, he makes six statements declaring his deity. And uh, two of them are found in verses 22 and 23. If you look at verse 22, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That is a divine statement, because all these people knew that God's the judge, right? That, that's all throughout the Old Testament, that God is judge. That's Genesis 18.25. Says God is the judge of the earth. Judges eleven twenty seven uh, says that the Lord is judge. But here Jesus says, "Oh, by the way, I'm the judge. The Father has given all judgment to the Son." And in verse twenty three, what's the purpose of this? He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. For whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So this is just a profound statement that Jesus makes and, and would have just, just quite frankly shocked the, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees. So Jesus comes back to it, and he elaborates on it because they're probably standing there with their mouths agape, and that's what he's doing in, in verses uh, 27 to 29, is he's coming back and he's revisiting this idea. He's basically giving commentary on verse 22. He's explaining it. And he's saying that God has given me this authority to execute judgment because I am the Son of Man. And at my voice, all will come out of the graves." This would have made an incredible, remarkable impression on the apostles that were standing there as well. Think about that, Jesus' disciples that are listening to all of this take place. And they never forgot these statements that Jesus made regarding the final judgment. This really became the framework for all of the apostolic preaching of the book of Acts. If you go read the book of Acts, when they're preaching, they're constantly talking about this reality that Jesus is coming back at the end of history to judge everyone. I, I find that striking when you compare the teaching of the apostles and so much of modern preaching today. So much of modern preaching reduces evangelism to uh, how can your life be better? And, and how can your life be more full? And of course, Jesus provides all of that. But the context and the tapestry of the gospel is this reality of the final judgment, that Jesus came to pro provide a way of escape. Listen to what Peter said. This is Acts 10 in Cornelius' house. Uh, he says, and he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify 
that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. If you have a King James, it says the quick and the dead. This is what Jesus commanded us. We're to preach to the people and warn everyone that he is coming back to be the judge of everybody. The Apostle Paul, remember on Mars Hill, they asked him to give an explanation uh, for his preaching. And he's saying to all, the, all the, the, the wise philosophers in Athens, he says, Acts 17, 31, he says, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this future judgment that Jesus is talking about here in the temple, this became the message of the apostles because it's true. This is how history is going to end. And it's what Jesus came to prepare and rescue us for. This is why he came. And what Jesus says here in John chapter 5, I just want you to take off your religious hat for a second and think about what Jesus says compared to what our current culture believes and how out of step what Jesus is saying about history compared to what the intellectual elites in our society teach. What is taught about history today? History's getting better and better. We're advancing. We're progressing. That one day we'll wake up in a bright, shining utopia, right? And that, that man is going to be, what's the phrase? On the right side of history, right? This is, this, it's the idea that you can scientifically engineer history. That's what man thinks, whether it's uh, Darwinian evolution, right? That man is biologically advancing. We're smarter than our predecessors. Whether it's Marxism, that man is economically advancing, or whether it's statism, that the state is getting better and better and better and better and providing more and more of the solutions to man's problems. Until one day, you know, this, this Tower of Babel will be built and all the problems will be diminished because we have educated men and women to the point of utopia. Now, two problems with that. One is it severely underestimates the evil and darkness in man. And, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. You just need to read uh, a history of the 20th century. More people died in wars and holocausts and gulags in the 20th century than any other century combined. You're not going to engineer utopia. And by the way, it's already been tried. <laughs> just, just look at the Soviet Union and its collapse. And secondly, it fails to reckon with the reality of an almighty God who is Lord of history. And this is what Jesus is saying here. This is the audacity of his claim. Is he's saying, I am the Lord, the judge. I am the final consummation of history. History ends 
when I come back at my voice, when I come back to judge the living and the dead. Awesome. And our world hates that reality. Hates that reality. How did we used to date our calendar? Remember? B.C. and A.D. Before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. How do we date it now? B.C.E. and C.E. Before the Common Era and Common Era. I say before Christ Empire and Christ Empire. But people are trying to even date the way that we look at the world apart from God and apart from Christ. But no, 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 no. That's, you need to understand what Jesus is saying. History is going to come to this climactic end. Jesus said it will be like the days of Noah. People will be living their lives, and then, bam, Jesus will return Nobody knows the day or the hour, and then these events will unfold. So let's understand what Jesus is saying very carefully here. I just want to give you three words this morning to understand Jesus and what he's teaching in the judgment. And the first word is authority. I want you to write authority in the margin next to verse 27. Jesus says that he has authority in judgment. Look at verse 27. And he, that's the Father, has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That word authority, exousia, denotes absolute power to rule, power to reign. We don't really understand what it's like to be under somebody with absolute power, uh, I understand a little bit of it because I've been on a Navy ship before. When you step on a Navy ship, that captain has absolute power over the souls on his boat. And he can do court-martials. You know, Admiral Lord Nelson, they could, they could sentence you to, uh, in the British Navy, Navy, they could sentence you to death uh, right then and there on the boat if you violated uh, a command uh, from the captain. But Jesus says, I've been given this absolute raw power and authority over the cosmos. I've been given this authority to execute judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority, all exousia is given unto me. And this includes this authority to execute judgment. Now, what's the reason that Jesus says why he has this authority. Look back at verse 27. Why does he have this authority to execute judgment? Because he is the Son of Man. That's the explanatory statement. Circle that phrase, Son of Man. Notice earlier in verse 25, how does he refer to himself? Son of God. Um, why does he switch? He refers to himself as the Son of God in verse 25. Why does he switch in verse 27? And why is that the explanatory reason for why he has authority? Here's why. He's making a reference to a prophecy here in the book of Daniel, to Daniel chapter 7. You see, 
Daniel made a prophecy that there would be a messianic figure, God incarnate, who would come back on the last day to judge everybody. So I want you to turn very briefly to the left to Daniel chapter 7, because we have to understand what Jesus is referencing here. Uh, His hearers would have known exactly what he was referencing when he said, son of man. Uh, Just turn, in my Bible, it's maybe uh, a couple hundred pages uh, to the left. It's towards the end of the Old Testament, right after Ezekiel. So Daniel has this vision in Daniel 7, and the vision is of four nations. Uh, These nations, uh, Daniel is prophesying, uh, these nations came to exist, and their rise and downfalls happened exactly like Daniel prophesied. If you look at verse 2 of Daniel 7, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The sea in the Old Testament often represents something bad, something evil. And then he says, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Uh, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. This first beast is the nation of Babylon. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Right there, most scholars think that he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar was meant to go uh, and and live like an animal and eat grass and all those things? And then, then the Lord restored his mind to him, and he stood back up. That's what Daniel's talking about there. Uh, after uh, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Uh, next comes the bear. Look at verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. This is the Medo-Persian empire. It was raised up on one side. That's the, that's the Persian side of the Medo-Persian empire. Remember uh, Xerxes? And Thermopylae and, and the, the, the hordes of the Persian army that, that came and attacked Greece. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. And it did, and it conquered uh, much of the ancient world. And after the Persians were beat at the Battle of Marathon, what empire rose up next? Do you remember? The Greeks. The Greeks rose up next, and that's who we see in verse 6. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So, do you remember Alexander the Great conquered the known world? After he died, his Greek kingdom was split into four, and four kings followed him. And Daniel predicts that. Those are the four heads, and dominion was given to it. Then, verse 7, after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. By the way, who's he talking about here? Rome, the Roman Empire. Who are the ten horns? The ten Caesars, right? From Julius Caesar all the way down. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, most 
scholars believe this was a, a Roman Caesar named Antiochus Epiphanes. He says, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So, what happens here and, and what results is that the Son of Man basically throws all those kingdoms to the side, that all the, the kingdoms of the world ultimately come to an end with the final return of the Son of Man. The way that Revelation, if you read John's Apocalypse, Revelation, Revelation 13, is he describes two beasts in Revelation 13. One of those beasts is basically, uh, you could call it a revived Roman Empire, but it's basically all the governments of the world cooperating together, opposing Christianity. That's what John describes in Revelation 13, and he describes it also as a beast coming out of the sea. How does all of this come to an end? Look at verse 13 of Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So he's distinct from the Father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Look at verse 21. Skip over to verse 21. Daniel says, as I looked, this horn, this is, this is uh, a leader in this Roman Empire. He says, this made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Listen, until when? Until the ancient of days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So, the government of the world, makes war against the saints. It prevails over them until this Son of Man, this apocalyptic figure, returns, and then judgment happens, and then the saints all possess the kingdom. So, turn back, if you will, to John chapter 5. You understand what Jesus is saying here now. He's saying, I am this figure from Daniel. I am this prophesied Messiah that is coming back to judge the world. That's the authority that he's been given. Now, next to verse 28, I want you to write another word. I want you to write universal. Universal. I want you to see the Lord Jesus' universality in judgment, that this judgment that happens when he returns applies to every single person who has ever lived, who is alive today, uh, who was alive in the past, and who will be alive in the future. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all, look at that statement, when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. 
Jesus says, an hour is coming. An hour means a distinct period of time. It's not a literal hour. It means uh, a period of time that's marked for a specific purpose. And Jesus says, this, this period of time is coming in the future. This purpose for judgment. And he says, when he comes, he says, all who are in the tombs, and that's essentially uh, a, a representative statement that means everybody who's died. Everybody uh, that Scripture is going to explain in other texts who has ever lived. Obviously, not everybody that has died has been buried. Uh, many people are cremated. Uh, some are lost at sea. A uh, number of things have happened to different people's bodies. Not everybody's body is buried. But what Jesus is saying here is that all who are in the tombs, this is, this is everyone without exception, will hear his voice and they will come alive. Now, let me explain what is happening here. When you die, what happens to your soul? Does your soul go to sleep like some people teach and stay in the grave? No, no, no. Your soul right now, if you are a believer, if you've trusted Christ in salvation, immediately goes to the presence of the Lord, to what's called Abraham's bosom. You immediately go to, to, to the pre, into the presence of the Lord. But it's your soul, not your body. If you don't know the Lord, you go to what's called Hades, or you could call it hell, but it's essentially the place of the dead that is away from the place of the Lord. And there your soul waits awaiting judgment. What is happening here is that when the Lord Jesus comes back, He raises everyone, and those who are alive also are then given uh, new bodies, both those who are being raised, He's going to say in verse 29, to judgment, and those who are being raised to life. Everyone is going to get a new resurrection body fitted for the purpose of their eternal state. And at that point, your soul will be reunited with your body. So you're going to be a soul without a body until the Lord comes back. At that point, when you're in heaven, you're going to come with the Lord, and you're going to be reunited to a resurrection body again, glorious day. So that's what's happening. And and. Jesus says, and all will come out. People will, this event will happen. The souls will be reunited with uh, resurrection bodies. And for those who don't know the Lord, man, this will be a frightening moment. This will be a dreadful moment. That's literally what Joel the prophet said. Uh, Joel 2, uh, 11, Joel said, the Lord utters his voice before his army, his army of angels, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, or you could say dreadful. Who can endure it? No one can endure it outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Joel hints at there, there's a camp that comes with the Lord, an army that comes with the Lord, if you read what Jesus teaches in Matthew, this is uh, Matthew chapter 
13. You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 13, uh, verse 41, Jesus says that the Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when the Lord Jesus, as the Son of Man, comes back, He is going to come back with the army of angels, and He's going to raise everyone with this resurrection body, unite them, uh, unite their soul to that body, and then He is going to send His angels forth over the whole world to gather everyone together. And when He gathers everyone together, in the passage that Kenny read, that's Matthew chapter 25, you see what He does. When He gathers everyone together, it says, uh, verse 32, before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. So, He will then separate everyone for judgment. And notice again the universality of this judgment. It's every single person who has ever lived. The Caesars, the emperors, the presidents, the authors, the athletes, the generals, the admirals, every single person without exception on that day will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the books will be opened and judgment will take place. Experientially, we know this is true. We know there will be a final judgment because there's something inside of us that says that wrong that we see in the world has to be righted. That there has to be justice for a holocaust. We know that. Immanuel Kant, he said, man, I can't believe in any of the other classical proofs for the existence of God. I I don't, you know, and he was wrong about that. He said, I don't see any validity to them, but I have to believe in God because I have to believe that there's going to be justice someday. And experientially, we know this is true in our conscience because what happens when you commit a premeditated sin You think about it, you plan it, you do it, and what happens immediately afterwards? The guilt. You feel the guilt. You weren't planning on it, but then it's there. Kenny was telling me, apparently at one point, he drove a car that somebody wanted to steal. What type of car was that? A Jeep Commando. And somebody wanted to steal the Jeep Commando, and they did. And Kenny called the police, and they found the Commando a few miles away, and there was a post-it note in the Commando. And they said, I stole your car, but then I felt guilty. So I parked it here. What is that? It's the guilt. It's the hangover right? You, you commit the sin, and what, what happens the next day? The hangover's there. It's the guilt. The guilt before who? God. 
Your conscience is testifying within you that you are guilty before God. That's why the guilt's there in your conscience. And you are guilty. Because you, the, 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 you know, people wonder, how do I get rid of the feeling of guilt? Well, it's not just a feeling, it's a reality. You are guilty before God. That's why you feel guilty. And that feeling is your conscience testifying to you that you will have to stand before the Lord in judgment. So that's the second word, universal. And then the third, I want you to write next to verse 29, is justice. Justice. There is going to be justice in this final judgment. It will be righteous. It will be just. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, those who have done good will be raised to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The Lord Jesus will judge everyone on the basis of good and evil. Those who have done evil will be resurrected with a body fitted for that punishment. Uh, One thing I want you to understand here, just I know we have guests here today. Each and every one of us on that day deserves judgment. We, each and every one of us, deserve hell, or what Jesus calls the lake of fire. Paul says this in Romans 3.10. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.20, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. He's talking about on that day, when you stand before God in the judgment, no human being by works of the law will be justified in his sight. He says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We all deserve punishment on that day because we've all broken God's law. Christianity doesn't teach that there's uh, bad people and good people. It teaches that we're all bad people in need of rescue. What's the penalty, though, for the bad people? That's us. What do we deserve? What does everyone deserve? Well, uh, Jesus explains it in Matthew 25. I'm not going to have you turn there, but just listen to what he says. This, this will be the penalty on that day of judgment for all the bad people. He says, and, and I will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about an ultimate place of punishment, not the place where people are now awaiting judgment, but an ultimate place of punishment. In Revelation 20, it's called the lake of fire. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 49, he says, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, this is such a sobering reality, but it's sobering because it's real, and it's true, and this will happen. Jesus, with compassion in his eyes, is saying this. Don't forget this. This is Jesus saying this. 
And he's warning you and warning his hearers about what lies ahead in the future. Furthermore, Jesus explains throughout the Gospels, if you read the Gospels carefully, that there will be degrees of judgment on that day. Some people will be punished far more worse than others in the lake of fire. And our minds immediately go to killers and rapists and thieves. You know, those are the people that will have the most severe judgment, right? It's not what Jesus says. Yes, those people will have a severe judgment, but the most severe judgment will be those that had the gospel proclaimed to them, that had the light of the truth and rejected it. That's what Jesus says. This is Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? He says, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, remember Sodom was judged in the Old Testament by fire and salt from heaven coming down on it. He said, if, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, they would have repented. They would have trusted the Lord. He says, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Capernaum, because he did all his miracles there, and he was preaching there, and he healed everyone there, but they didn't believe. Just think about America, how much light has been given this country, the preaching of the gospel that has occurred in this country. I mean, our country was founded by pilgrims for religious freedom. Our country has all the light in the world. You can find a Gideon Bible in every hotel room. You can turn on the TV and see Billy Graham preaching the gospel. But we've rejected God. And there will be a severe judgment on this day for this nation for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark my words. So the more light you have, the more severe judgment you will have on that day. But here's the good news. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, some will come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life. Circle that word life. Notice it's different from the other resurrection. What's the other resurrection? A resurrection of judgment. Some will have a resurrection of life. How can that be? If we all deserve a resurrection of judgment, how is there a resurrection of life? And how are there those who have seemingly done some good works? Don't the Scriptures say that no one does good, that no one seeks after God? Didn't we hear that a minute ago? Now, friends, we see the full tapestry of the gospel. You see, in light of the judgment, we understand what Jesus did. You see, the very one that will sit in judgment came to this earth to be judged for our sin. That is the meaning of the incarnation and the meaning of the cross of Christ. 
The meaning of the cross of Christ isn't just to show us how to love other people. The meaning of the cross of Christ was to take the wrath of God for sin that you deserved to pay for all of eternity. That is the meaning of the cross. Jesus, perfect, righteous, just, obeyed the law of God perfectly. He did not deserve to be judged. But when he allowed himself to be crucified, and he did. He could have called an army of angels down at any moment, but when he allowed himself to be crucified, God the Father pulled the switch on the Son in the wrath of God for sin, the judgment of God, the lake of fire was poured out on him for sinners. So this very judge who is going to judge the living and the dead suffered judgment that we deserved on our behalf, in our place, for our sins. So does this mean that everyone's saved? No. Some will be in the resurrection of judgment. Why? Because they rejected the atonement that was made for them. They rejected the Lamb of God. Here's the thing. It's not the day of judgment yet. And because it's not the day of judgment left, there is still time for you to confess your sins and repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the promise that is made. This is the promise. Listen carefully. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans chapter 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Everyone without exception who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Your sins forgiven, washed away by his blood. Christ's perfect life credited to you. Christ's death becomes your death, his righteousness your righteousness. And so, I mean, what, what I find so astounding is he says, you will have a resurrection of life. There is no future judgment for you. The other people are, are, are raised to a resurrection of judgment. You have a resurrection of life. You will, yeah, you'll stand there in the day of judgment, but you already know where you stand. You stand justified. And, and this is the good news of the gospel, is that your judgment you can be declared righteous and forgiven right now. That's what, it, that's what the doctrine of justification teaches. And this is, this is the, the truth that's changed the world, the gospel. That you can be forgiven and justified now, instantaneously. And you don't have to worry one more minute about the day of judgment. But you have to trust Christ you have to come to him now and be cleansed by his blood and not put it off. Listen, you came today to a gospel preaching church so that you could hear this warning, I have no doubt, and so that you could hear this good news, this good news that all who are cleansed by his blood are forgiven. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, 
lose all their guilty stains. So what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to invite you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite you to be forgiven of all your sins, to be cleansed. I'd like to invite you to trust in Christ. I'm not going to have you walk an aisle or come up here or anything like that, but I am going to invite you to call out to him. I want everyone to bow their heads right now. And if you have never trusted Christ, don't wait for that final day of judgment. Don't wait. Call out to him now. Cry out to the Lord. Say, Lord Jesus, save me. Save me, Lord. I know that on my own merit I will be judged, but I know, Lord, that you have provided this sacrifice. Call out to him. Call out to the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've called out to the Lord, this resurrection life is yours. This resurrection to life in the future will be yours, and you will reign with the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, forever and ever and ever. We thank you, Lord, for this atonement, for this work that you've done for us, this righteous life and this death on the cross for sinners. Wow, no hope without it. Thank you, Lord, for this confidence of a justified sinner that we can know where we stand before God. We praise you, Lord. May our worship be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.